So, we're back in the letter of 1 Peter, which we started in the Easter season and we're now finishing up before the season of Advent. And last week I shared that one of the main themes of this letter is that Peter wants these Christians to know who they are. That they're God's beloved, His chosen ones, His adopted children whom He's purchased through the life and death of Jesus. And soon we're going to hear Peter tell us this, Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Peter wants us to know that we are loved by God. But there is this other description that Peter uses for these Christians and for us as we read this letter. This description is that they are sojourners and aliens. That they are and that we are. Sojourners and aliens. And he calls them this to again get at the odd mixture of feelings Christians experience in the world. This nagging sense that the world is never going to quench our thirst. Christians live with a foot in two places. One foot in the world, but one foot in another. We, we've believed, we've come to believe that this world is afflicted by a cancer, that it's beyond sick and that Jesus died and rose from the dead to clear the way for the world's cure, its renewal. And we're in the place of trying to keep our balance as we live in the world of sin and we've already put one foot in the world that's coming, the world of resurrection. We're strangers to this world. We should not be surprised when there are things about life and things about the way people behave that are strange to us. When we're strange to other people. And Peter is dealing with some of this strangeness in today's passage. Chapter 4, verses 1-11. through 11. If you have your Bible, I hope you'll open it to 1 Peter chapter 4. And I want to start by drawing your attention to the multiple time references Peter makes here. So the first reference is in verse 2. Peter has said, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And we'll talk in a few minutes about what that might mean. And he goes on, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter's talking about the finite amount of time that each person has on earth. What are we to do with this time? This is one matter on which Christians and non-Christians can't agree, can't we? None of us are arguing that we aren't going to die. The second time reference follows on the heels of that one. It's in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Parents, do you know... You know those situations where your children have been pushing the boundaries for a little while? They've been making those odd animal noises over and over and over again, or they've been asking you this nagging question that you've answered and that they're still asking the question, and eventually you're bubbling up and you get to the point where you just say, very politely, of course, that's enough. (laughs) That's what Peter's saying here about Christians' past way of living. However little or however much of it you've had, it's enough. It's time to move on. 
Now the third time reference is in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, he says. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The resurrection of Jesus had been so unusual. Listen, this was unusual in the ancient world, not only in our world. It was so unusual that Christians were convinced this new era had been launched into the middle of history. And this is actually positive evidence for the fact of the resurrection. Christians are claiming that time has literally been divided in half between the days before the resurrection and the days after it. And this new era makes up the last days as we wait for God's final act. The days are numbered for things to continue as they are. Now, you might say, and people have said this, they continue to say this, it's been nearly 2,000 years and Jesus hasn't returned. Can't we say that these Christians were wrong? Those weren't really the last days. After all, the only people you hear talking about this these days are half-crazed lunatics, people with wild hair and wild eyes. This really isn't fair to say. You see, the, the people of God were always accustomed to having to wait. Longer than they thought. There was the 400 years in Egypt. There were the multiple exiles they experienced. There were the 400 years between the prophets and Jesus. God's people are used to His timetable functioning very differently than their own. And Jesus Himself, He didn't know when He would return. All He said was that when He did come, it was going to be a shock. We need always be ready. I've shared with you before my story of my first successful deer hunting outing. But I'm going to share it again because deer hunting is so similar to waiting for Jesus to return. You're supposed to stay awake and always be ready. So I was 13 or 14 and I had sat in the stand forever, like three hours and saw nothing. And I was ready to go, uh, but my dad was not ready to go. And so I sat on the floor of the stand and I put my head in the chair. The deer had won again, right? But I lifted up my head just because to, to keep my dignity as a hunter, to be able to say, yeah, I'm still a hunter. So I look out once again after a nap. And there the deer was. There he was. I didn't know where he came from. I didn't know how long he had been there. But this is what the end will be like when it comes. We'll look back from there and time is going to be seen different to us. It came suddenly. It might seem like a while in the waiting, but it will come. And it will still surprise us. Now the final time reference in the passage is the most unique. It's in the last line, verse 11. Peter says, The purpose of all this is that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, up until now, we've been thinking in terms of a limited time frame. Finite. The time we have left. Of the last days that are going to give way to a new day. But here we come to this other dimension of time that never ends. It persists from now into the eternal future. And the constant element in this eternal dimension of time is the glory and dominion of God. 
This is what never ends. Now, we've come to a place in our culture where most references to the end times are made in jest. They're made to poke fun at these wild-eyed prophets who try to estimate the time until God returns. And then they also take pleasure in listing off the people that God's going to return, that God's going to destroy when He does return. Every time I think about this, look, I, I think about it negatively because I think back to the preachers who came to my college campus with their signs and their screaming. And maybe God does something through that. But it always seemed to me that this kind of preaching made sharing Jesus and witnessing to people even harder. That you had to do all this work to tell people, well, that's not really how Christians are. But despite all the bad ways this has been done, Peter really is trying to orient us to the realities of time. We have a limited amount of time here. All of us, all of us are dying. We are. But the glory and dominion of God is going to persist into eternity. And this orientation to time gives shape to our lives. This is the way Peter is going to shape the instructions he's about to give us. How do we live with the time we have? Peter basically says, there are some things you shouldn't do, and there are other things you should do. Now, this is how we're going to look at the passage with the few minutes we have left. Verses 1 through 6 are essentially about things you should not do. Verses 7 through 11 are basically things that you should be doing. Now, years ago, there was a Simpsons episode where the town Springfield held its first do-what-you-feel festival. Hang with me. The person working the parking lot at the festival is waving people through and saying, park anywhere, I'm not going to lay any rules for anybody today. And then you see this mass of vehicles facing every direction and they're crashing into each other. Now, there are people who are dressed or not dressed however they wish. And there's a James Brown character singing, I feel good, during the festival. But all of a sudden, there's this set of grandstands where a marching band was playing, and it comes crashing down. And the James Brown character pulls out a bolt, and he says, hey, this grandstand wasn't double bolted. To which the worker, who was standing nearby, says, I didn't feel like it. Now Marge, the mom figure, Here's this, and she says, I don't want to judge the rightness of your ego orientation, but my inner critic says you should have done your job. Then another character comes up and says, let's not should him to death. And the entire scene erupts into this pandemonium. You know, there's people, another a Ferris wheel flies off its tracks, and people are saying we shouldn't should people the whole time. The entire point, of course, and it's conveyed in this really brilliant way, is the idea that we shouldn't, that we shouldn't should people or shouldn't people, that we shouldn't tell people what they should or shouldn't do, and that this idea is absolutely ludicrous. Humanity can't function this way. We are made to be told how to live and to receive these kinds of instructions. 
to submit to them as an authority in our lives. So this is what the Bible does. It steps right into our lives and it says, there are some things you shouldn't do. And so in this passage, it says, you should not let your own desires get the best of you. Notice this in verse 2. Peter says, for the rest of the time in the flesh, we should live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, when it talks about passions here, it's talking about our desires that are run amok. We, we don't put the governor on ourselves and you know, on our own thinking and acting. And we don't let anyone else do this. And so we live lives that are just out of control. Peter says this kind of living is a complete waste of your time. It's a waste of your life. And most importantly, there's a day of reckoning coming, a day of accounting for our lives. So God's intent, Peter says, is that even though people die, after death they will enter the life of God. This is what he means in that passage in verse 6 when he says, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter is not saying that Jesus went and preached to people who are literally dead. The Christians here are confused because their, their friends believed in Jesus, but now they've died and they've wondered, what's happened to them? Was this off or not? But Peter says physical death is judgment on the body, but those who die in faith are now alive to God. So the question here is, are we putting the governor on for ourselves? Are we resisting habits that are a waste of time in our lives? And Peter describes the typical kind of of out-of-control life. Sex, excessive drinking, parties that are simply for making a fool of yourself, idolatry, false worship. There's a sense in which this stuff hasn't changed. The typical out-of-control life still looks this way. I worked in a restaurant in New Orleans uh, during Mardi Gras in the French Quarter. And I remember, you know, I was a seminary student, pretty innocent kid, and these women who are in their 60s or so are coming in and they are just lit. And I thought, these women have children and they're acting like children. This is what so many of the parties in the world that are exalted are for, so that you can act like you have no responsibility again. So are we putting the governor on for ourselves? Notice that all these things Peter describes are good things in God's creation that are being abused. So, sex is a wonderful thing when used well. Alcohol, a good thing when used well. The social aspect of a party, this is a wonderful thing when used well. But if you don't control your desires, you end up spoiling the things God has given. And in the end, you don't actually receive more joy from it, you receive less. Here's what's sad, is we give ourselves over to to these things thinking they'll give us more joy, but in the end, when we use them excessively, we receive less from them. Don't you see, living for yourself is no way to live. And this is why Peter says, you've had enough of that. It's time to move on. 
Now, if we choose not to live by our passions, but to live for God, Peter makes us aware of two types of suffering and hardship we face in this kind of life. And I want to point these out to you. First, we're going to suffer against ourselves, our own temptations and our own inner demons. Because our own reactive initial inclinations in life are often wrong. Think about your reactions to people when you're in a high-pressure situation. Your initial reaction to people is usually wrong. It might be to react in anger. It might be react in fear. But our initial reactions to people can be, are often wrong. And what we have to do is retrain our inclinations in the right way. We have to develop reflexes that are good. So this involves a struggle against ourselves, against sin that's wrapped up in us, And this is difficult. So, do you remember in the story of Jesus' temptation by the devil? The devils tried to get Jesus to take this easier road rather than one he knows he'll be difficult. He's tried to get him to make food for himself when he knows Jesus is hungry. He's tried to get him to show his power by throwing him off this high point of the temple and having the angels come rescue him. And Jesus resists the devil at every turn But at the end, when the devil has left him, we're told that angels came and were ministering to him. I think a lot of what we're to draw from this is that Jesus was absolutely spent. That the testing of the devil was hard, even on Jesus. That resisting him took spiritual energy and strength. And so this is what Peter means when he says you need to prepare yourself to suffer the way Jesus did. Because this is what it's going to take to be done with sin in your life. It's going to take this kind of wrestling that will wear you out. It's going to take the inner strength of God and His Spirit helping you to resist these habits in your life that are so natural for you. So are you struggling against yourself? Do you you find the inner demons showing themselves and you having to struggle against them? If you do, you should actually be encouraged about this. This means that you're in the fight. You're working at it. If you don't find that you're having to struggle, that's more of a concern. Now, If you're in this fight, you need to know that just as the angels helped Jesus, Jesus is going to send His Spirit and His angels to help you. So be encouraged. Don't give up. He's going to help you no matter how hard this fight gets. So this is one way we experience suffering when we choose to be done with sin in our lives. We struggle against ourselves, against our inner demons. But there's this other way we can expect to suffer and struggle in resisting sin. And this comes from others. Listen to verse 4 of chapter 4. Peter says, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. I kept thinking this week, when as I was reflecting on this passage, about, about the way this type of group pressure starts early in life and it never changes. So think about it. When you're young, it could be a group of people who are making fun of one person because 
they're not dressed well or they're not as athletic or whatever it may be. But one person says, don't make fun of them. Or one person just chooses not to join in on the making fun. And all of a sudden, that person becomes a target too. They're ruining the group's fun. And so they turn on the person who's defending someone. Now, as you get older into high school and college, the situations change. It presents itself in other ways, the pressures. It's drinking, drugs, or it's sex. Why wouldn't you do this? It's fun. Are you too good for it? What's wrong with you? And the stuff continues as you get older. Even as you have a family, there are these subtle pressures from culture not to be so worried about even something like attending church. Why are you worried about missing church? Why why can't you do sports on Sundays? Why is that a big deal? Or there are the not-so-subtle questions. How can you believe that? I thought Christians were loving. There are lots of presenting issues. We don't even have to seek it out. If we choose to heed the call and resist the way of life that we are being warned about here, trouble will come to us. We'll suffer from ourselves, our own inner demons, but also we will suffer from outside, from false accusation and misunderstanding. This is just part of it. But there's another side in this passage. Beyond simply what we shouldn't do, there are those things that Christians should be doing. What do people do if they know they have little time left? Well, the typical reaction is live it up. Enjoy life because it's ending. You you burn it up while you've got it. But Peter says the job of Christians is to bring the life of the future, the life of heaven where God receives glory and dominion forever and ever into present reality. And this kind of life involves all of who we are. So to do this, Peter calls us to use our mind, our heart, and our body. Now, I think what Peter's doing in this this second section, verses 7 through 11, you know the way Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind, and strength? So I think Peter is calling us to engage our mind, our heart, will, and our body in loving God here, in living the kind of life that he's calling us to live. Now, let me show you quickly what I mean by this. First, he says in verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, Peter's saying, you've got to think through this kind of life. This kind of life requires your mind. It requires mental muscles. It requires mental energy and prayer. So when he says self-controlled and sober-minded, what he's getting at is the exact opposite of wasting your life on your own passions, that you're drinking yourself silly, excessive, all these parties and things, where you're actually numbing yourself and you're dulling your own mind. Peter's saying your mind needs to be sharp if you're going to live this kind of life. You're going to have to give yourself to it mentally and in prayer. And if you don't, you're going to feel lost trying to live this kind of life. You're going to try to resist sin and all these kinds of outside pressures, but you're just not going to know how to do it. You're not going to have the energy and the mental strength for it. 
So you've got to come to church. You've got to listen to the Scriptures. You've got to come to God's table. You've got to talk about the Scriptures in the Christian life with friends. You've got to pray. These are all necessary ways we live into the life of God in the present. And this kind of life requires your mind. But it also requires your heart. You might call it your will. So Peter says in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. He refuses to let our love be left up to our feelings, because that kind of love is going to dissipate quickly when it's tested by outside pressures. So a marriage where the love is based on feelings is not going to survive when children come into the picture, when finances come into the picture. And it's the same with a church. We're to love one another earnestly, and that means without wavering. It means constantly, not based on your feelings. We train our emotions, our heart, and our will to love. It's the decision we make every time. Because it's unavoidable that we are going to offend each other and anger each other. Peter's not naive. He's actually realistic. It's going to happen. We're going to sin against each other. But that never means everything is lost. You know, early in marriage, I found that the first year when, you know, you're just learning things about each other. (laughs) And every time you had it out, you thought, oh, no, is this the end? What are we going to do? How are we going to make it through this? But it seems like as marriage moves along and you have fights and you, you trust each other, You know that you're committed to it. And it's like, it's going to be okay. We're going to find a way through this. Have you ever experienced friendships like this? Where you wonder, oh, you know, I've offended them. I've done something. I wonder if they're still going to be my friend, whatever. This is the way it's in the church. We do things wrong to each other. We sin against each other. And at first we wonder, are we going to be able to make it through this? But a mature love is willing to say, never is everything lost. Because love covers a multitude of sins. God has poured out His love on us so that we can pour it out on each other. And over and over again, we can disappoint each other. But we can still love each other. The life of God requires your heart, your will to love. Now lastly, this living this life requires your body that you give of yourself in some some way. So uh, Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Each of you, all of us, have been given gifts to serve the people of God so that this church might become more fully itself and might more fully bring glory to God. Are you using your body? Are you giving your body to the body of Christ so that this body might become more fully itself and might glorify God more? If you don't feel like you're getting to do that, I need you to tell me that. I need to know that. 
We are being called to give of our full selves, mind, heart, and body, to live the life of God in the present, to manifest the reality of God's eternal glory and dominion over the earth. So are you giving of your full self, your mind, your heart, and your body to serve God and to be this kind of person? So today is the celebration of all saints. It's a day we give thanks for those who have died, who embodied the faith for us, who inspired us by living the life of heaven on earth. And during the prayers of the people, as I said earlier, you're going to have a chance to give thanks for saints who have helped you. And I hope that you have someone that you can mention their name. Now the truth is, these are the lives that we're the most grateful for. These are the lives we most admire. Those who lived in self-sacrifice. Not those who wasted their lives by living for themselves. Think about the people that you hold in the most esteem. It's people who lived a life of self-giving love. This passage is calling us to live as saints like that. To seek by God's mercy to live a meaningful life that manifests the love of heaven on earth, that looks forward to the eternal day when God is revealed in His glory and His power and He reigns forever. So are you striving for this kind of life? Most of us have to be converted to this kind of life over and over again, day by day. And so if you're not, will you turn to God in a fresh way Let Him show you His mercy and receive you on His kingdom way. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.